Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of William Lowe, who was the gas station attendant. But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 7, Episode 15. And the episode was titled Truth because this episode was all about truth. And we heard uh, some police interviews. And I, I do want to apologize up front that those were a little hard to hear. We always have a struggle balancing out the ability to let you guys hear the actual raw footage uh, as opposed to sound quality. And usually the litmus test is, which it was for this one, is is the sound quality good enough for you to hear what the person's saying, even if it's kind of annoying? And in this case, I think you could hear them, so we went ahead and played them. Sometimes we cut them because it's just so bad you can't even hear what they're saying. But So we had Travis Gaddis's police interview and Rick Bradford's police interview, and then we had Rick reach out to me and correct some things about uh, what he had told police or what, what he had been told that he told police along the way. So I know Mike said we have a lot of questions this week. Plenty of them. That's right. And also, of course, we are joined by Mr. Zach Weaver. Hey, guys. So let's go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. Hundredth cappuccino by eight, two hundredth customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our stay connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30-second 4G activation or one-off credit. New customers, Pro Plus packs only. T's and C's apply. All right, our first question comes from Lisa. Would it be possible to get a recap of the timeline? When Bill was killed, when the police started looking at Jamie, where Jamie was living and when, when they interrogated Jamie's wife and Susan, Susan's trial, when the witnesses came forward with their statements, and Jamie's trial. Yeah, okay. I mean, I don't have notes in front of me, but uh, so I'll give you the best I can give you from memory. We know, obviously, Bill Little was killed on March 31st, 1991 on Easter Sunday. Jamie became a suspect shortly thereafter. 
when uh, some tips came in about him, people who said that there was rumors flying around that maybe he was part of it. I think that had a lot to do with the fact that he was he was involved in the Freedom Oil robbery about a month before. And then you have you know you, they, you interview the Luna Boys. Then uh, they do the Carlos does the the in person lineup. Gutierrez and um, and somebody else had said I made a post about confusing all the names. So I'll try to make these a little more clear. Witness Danny Martinez, who was the one who was putting air in his tires. Uh, he gave a composite sketch. And he looked at a photo array and then an in-person lineup with Jamie, didn't identify him. That's all within a couple months of the crime. Jerry Gutierrez was the man who was in the gas station at about 8.05, saw the strange man at the counter, saw Bill acting very nervous, and you know Bill dropping his money as he handed it to him. We think that's the no-sale. Gutierrez also uh, gave statements to police and a composite drawing. Within The next day, the composite drawing, and I believe he looked at some lineups too, never identified anyone from the lineups. And then really you have, so and then Jamie, Jamie went to jail for the free, no, he didn't. He got arrested for the Freedom Oil case within about a month or two after Bill's murder. And then they dropped the charges that fall of 91. And that's when he moved to Florida was about then. He lived in Florida for a little while. Uh, and then he came back. I hope I'm getting all this right. I'm trying to do it from memory because then he came back and, and they recharged him in 1993 or four for the Freedom Oil. And he did some time there, got out. And then shortly after that, he moved back to Florida. It wasn't until the, the, the investigation really didn't pick up. And it was also in that 93, 94 time when Jamie did the polygraph. And then it wasn't until about until 1999 is when things heated up. When the cold case unit gets into it, Dan Katz gets involved. Rick Barkas was still involved. He was involved from the beginning. And that's when all these other witness statements start coming up. So that's when Travis Gaddis, who we talked about this week, was interviewed. That's when Rick Barkas was interviewed, even though he had sent the letter to Bill's parents years before in like 92. And that's when um, Tammy Snow and Susan uh, Claycomb were interviewed by police. When Tammy was getting pulled over, over and over again. And then, uh, trial wise, Susan's trial was in the, um, fall of 2000. And then Jamie's trial was in January of 2001. I don't know if that covered everything. And I'm also not entirely sure all of that's accurate, but that's the, the basics. All right. This one's from Jenny. I noticed in Sunday's episode, the person being interviewed said that Mark and Jamie said they fled on foot. This doesn't seem to fit the DA's version of events, since they said Susan was the getaway driver. Could this be one of the reasons they didn't have him testify at Jamie's trial? I don't think so. I mean, all these witness statements, when we go through them all, and I'm probably probably not going to dig into every single one of them in detail. I'll probably try to cover them in, you know, multiple confession jailhouse snitch witnesses in in the same episodes but i mean their stories are all over the place and you saw that in the oh and by the way i just figured out this morning when mike was going over some of these questions with me documents on the website so we had amongst all of our other technical difficulties my dropbox got messed up uh one of our other podcast hosts uh sam paulie from the disgruntled moms podcast not me <laughs> it was not zach was was trying to share a folder with me Anyway, long story short, it put my entire Dropbox account under her account, and then I lost all my stuff. I got it all back. 
But I've been uploading documents to the folder for Katie Ross, who does our website, to put on the website, assuming that they were all going through. I just found out this morning that even though they're in the folders on my side, they're not going to Katie. That's why they're not on the website. So I should have that corrected by today when you're hearing this on Friday. But getting back to the question, which is about the why they didn't use Travis Gaddis to testify, a lot of these witnesses, and oh, that's what I was saying, is the um, the closing arguments. You hear her saying, yeah, you can point out all the differences, but if you look at them all together, they're all basically saying the same thing, that Jamie confessed to doing this, and a lot of that is corroborated by the fact that other people have other statements, even though none of them are, are accurate, none of them line up. So I don't think that's it. I think the reason they didn't use Travis Gaddis to testify at trial was because he asked for a deal while the tapes were rolling. And so, the, and that was a major reason why I wanted you guys to hear that full interview. So you can hear what's going on. I think the same thing was going on with just about every single witness. The problem was with, with Gaddis is, you know, after they went through the, and we didn't offer you anything, right? Nope. Just, just the fact that I wouldn't be charged. And then usually the tapes off before they get into from what we've heard from other witnesses, any negotiations or discussion about what's going to happen next. In Gaddis's case, while the tape was still rolling, he said that he's not going to talk anymore unless he gets a deal. And and so that becomes something that has to be turned over in discovery. I think the state didn't want to mess with it. They had 15 other confession witnesses, so I think they just let him go. Do you think they were surprised that he said that? Uh, did you hear the tone? In- yeah, that's what I, I mean, that's what I was getting at when, when they, were you promised anything? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You hear that stuttering from yeah. the, from the officer. Uh, well, I, but, but I mean, but, but other than that, yeah. Yeah. I don't think they saw that coming and I think they knew that they were in trouble at that point. Yeah, I agree. Angie says, what happened to Gutierrez? Did he testify? And are you planning on looking further into some of the other people who should have been suspects? Yeah, absolutely. The two separate things. One, Gutierrez. We're going to do an episode on Gutierrez because there's an evolution to him as well. I don't think in any way a malicious evolution like what we heard with uh, Danny Martinez. But Jerry Gutierrez's story changed as well. And by the time he got to trial, you know, because he's a big problem because he stood three feet away or two feet away from the man that was based on what we know from the beginning, from his initial statements. He's in the store at, he says, 8.05. We got the no sale at 8.05 for, and he says he $3 worth of gas and there's no charge there. It all fits that he's standing there and he sees a guy who he gives a good detailed description with the scar on the chin and the earring looks nothing at all like Jamie Snow. That was a problem for the state that they did deal with by the time trial came around. But that'll be, that'll be an episode of its own. But we're, we're going to dig more into Jerry Gutierrez. Regarding other suspects, uh, yes, we are going to, you know, that's kind of our process as we go through. Uh, we tell the story. We go through the initial investigation to determine if there was a wrongful conviction. If so, how it happened. That's where we're at right now. And then we're going to get into new alternative suspects. And we have had some tips that are being looked into as we speak, but all of that will come out as we move forward with the with the season. Sarah says in the interview with Rick, he states he knows Jamie well and drank with him at the bars. Doesn't that go against everyone else saying he was barely ever in the bars? Yeah, it does. But I think that's in speaking in absolutes, right? So, I mean, so Jamie's never said he never went to a bar and didn't hang out in bars ever. And Tammy didn't say that either. I do know that the bar that Jamie did hang out in, I cannot pull the name right now. And I had it in a document that's sitting on my desk in the other room right now, Um, the time code or something like that it's called. 
But anyway, he didn't hang out in the bars that were mentioned, which were like scuttlebutts and windjammers. That's not where he hung out. There are people that I know that would say that they have had drinks with me in a bar, and that's true. But I'm very rarely at a bar. You know, you know, you know, maybe maybe once or twice in a month, I might go out with Becky and go to a bar. So I don't think it cuts against it, but I think it that's one of the reasons we have to realize we there's nothing in absolutes in this case or or any other. Tammy did label him as an extrovert, which right. right there, you know, would lead to going out. That doesn't mean always out, right? But that doesn't, you know, if she was going to label him as an introvert, then you can say, yeah, he's probably not at bars, right? But as an extrovert and labeling him as that. Yeah, he's outgoing, likes to socialize. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. you. Right. You know, you're definitely a person that's going to be out and about. Charming mother effer. That's pushing it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, this one's from Elizabeth. Do we know if the Luna boys were looking out from a ground floor window or an upstairs window and or which window exactly? Can you post the trial transcripts of Carlos Luna's testimony and or the deposition transcript and exhibits from his testimony in Susan's trial. Yeah, as far as posting them, that's, again, what I mentioned earlier that I thought I had posted them already. Um, so they'll get posted regarding the location. I've never seen it in any of the documents where it is spelled out specifically. The best that I can decipher from all the reports is that they were on a gr- in the ground floor bedroom in the, um, would be the northwest corner of the house, it said. so. I think they were looking at the window that faces north on the northwest corner on the ground floor is my understanding. But I've seen some people who have done diagrams. Uh, speaking of, if you go to the Truth and Justice podcast fan page, one of our transcribers, Pamela Wetsby, uh, made a nice post where she got on Google Maps and and did some distances and, and some, some aerial images to give you a better idea of uh, of where where he was at. And I think it was Pamela that also did a test where she had her husband go stand a hundred yards away and took a picture and then 200 yards away and then, or not yards, feet, I'm sorry, 200, 100 feet, 200 feet to see what kind of detail you could pick up on. And it, it made pretty clear that you, you can't make out any details. I believe the actual measurements that were taken later came to, I think, 222 feet is how far away. Cause someone also asked, you know, was it 200 or 250? I know it says over 200. I believe that investigators later, the numbers that stick in my head were 222 feet was the distance from the window to the, to the door where, where the, the person came out of when the Luna boys were watching. Karen says, I was going through my notes and Travis Gaddis said his brother was a good friend and best friend with Bill. What was the brother's name? Also, could he tell us how Bill got the bruises on his arm? Well, first of all, it wasn't Travis Gaddis, whose brother was friends with Bill. It was Rick Bradford, the guy that interviewed with me. So just to make that clear, I was trying to think of anything that his brother might know in the time we were doing the interview and nothing popped into mind. But but I don't know. I'll reach out to Rick and see if uh, maybe he can ask his brother about that. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Next, she says, in one of your follow-ups, you mentioned that Gloria, the Luna Boy's aunt, was robbed at the same store two weeks before, or maybe months before. She shared with Tammy Alexander where the silent alarm button was actually located and how easy it was to press the button. Do we know if Gloria had a conversation with Bill regarding that robbery? If Gloria spoke to Bill, maybe Bill was reacting the same way Gloria reacted during her robbery. In that regard, we might have a better idea as to when, why, or how Bill may have pushed the silent alarm. So there's a lot of questions in there. Um, I don't know if Gloria had a direct conversation with Bill about that. Regarding the the other burglary a robbery, excuse me, uh, that that occurred with Gloria there. That happened, I believe it was December of 90. So it was about four months before uh, the before Bill was killed. And regarding that one, I, as far as I know, there's never been an arrest. I, th- I think that's still an open case. But I do know that Gloria, for that reason, was brought into the in-person lineup, the one that included Jamie, and she didn't identify him or anyone else as being the people that robbed her back in December. Ellen says, what other evidence did they have at trial? It can't be that Jamie's convicted on a life sentence with just sketchy eyewitness testimony, lack of alibi, and jailhouse snitches. Seems preposterous, doesn't it? Yeah. Seems to go with the territory with wrongful convictions. Right. And the answer to the question is that's exactly how he was convicted. And in Sunday's episode, I traveled Tuesday this week to, I I don't want to say where the individual lives, but I traveled to go interview someone who was one of the the jailhouse snitches against Jamie, and you'll hear him say the same thing. Like, it never occurred to anyone that he could get convicted on that. It doesn't make any sense, but that is exactly what happened. You have, I mean, we've given you a grand overview, and now we're looking in detail, but in the grand overview, yes, Jamie was convicted from the two eyewitnesses who we've covered in depth, and then a bunch of people saying that he confessed, and and, and that's it. You know, you, you you can read once I get them posted um, properly in the closing arguments. You can you can read Tina Griffin's closing arguments where she's if I had to rephrase that, she basically is telling the jury, look, I know this is a weak ass case and there's really nothing there. But there's a, even though none of it is strong evidence, there's a whole lot of weak evidence. And if you add up all the weak evidence, it makes strong evidence, which, in my opinion, it does not. But that's it. Sue says, I hate to say this, but it seems to me that the only reason Rick wanted to talk with you so badly was to be on the podcast. He said he wanted to do the right thing, but his recollection all seemed vague. He didn't tell you anything you didn't already know, right? I'm probably being too cynical, but while I think it's good that you followed up on his request to talk, the interview just fell flat, in my opinion. It didn't for me, and I don't think that's it at all. And yes, he did give us information we didn't have before, and the biggest piece was that Travis Gaddis later told him that that didn't happen. Did, he said he didn't remember ever saying that to him, doesn't think it ever doesn't remember it ever happening. And so that that's a correction that so and it may not be relevant maybe to you, but when it comes to the record in in whole, when it, you know when this goes through post-conviction appeals, right now they're still sitting in the DA's file 
these statements that Jamie confessed, confessed, that's another witness that could come forward in a retrial, that could be brought up to testify in an actual innocence hearing. And now we know we have on record that, that it, it wasn't true, that, that it was, it was something that he, he doesn't even remember happening. So that was a new information, but I, I don't, I, I don't think that Rick wanted necessarily to be on the podcast. I know that because I had to convince him to be on the podcast. He just wanted to talk to me. And I, I think that his, his genuine concern was to set the record straight because right now the record says that Travis Gaddis heard Jamie Snow confess. He knows that didn't happen, and so he doesn't want he didn't want to leave that hanging out there in the file that that happened. So that's I think that's all it was. And for me, like I said earlier, a big part of why I think this episode was important and why hearing the actual raw audio was important was to hear the tactics that were going on and to hear the deals that were happening to get these guys to testify. Nina says, I just listened to older episodes and about the quarrels Bill and Danny had with other guys, and two names were mentioned. One of them probably was the guy responsible for Bill's older bruises. The other was the fight in which Danny defended Bill. Were these other guys ever truly investigated? No, no one was truly investigated. We have a lot of, you know, a lead here and there for for somebody. We, we went through a lot of them on the podcast, and what we see is it, it'll just, they'll just write cleared at the bottom. And, you know, we, we keep wondering, I keep wondering, how were they cleared? You know, in the police files and the lead sheets, there's nothing there to show how anyone was cleared, just that they were cleared. And it seems to me that they were cleared because they weren't Jamie Snow, so it couldn't have been them. Next, she wants to know, is it known when Bill and Gloria swapped their shifts? I think it was planned a, at least a week in advance. I do know, did know the answer to this. It wasn't like it was that day. I think my understanding was from reading through uh, all the files that it was it was arranged like the week before that Bill would work the shift. Next, Nina says a witness named Coleman interviewed by Pila was mentioned that asked spontaneously if the victim had been killed and if the victim was male. Was he from the area and a regular at the gas station or did he know more? Why was he asking that if he was gone before the murder happened? I geez, I'm trying to remember. I, I recall that. And I know that because it was it was made a point in the police report that this guy was suspicious because he was asking that. I don't remember if he's one of the ones that was eventually cleared because there was also in that same night in those same reports was Steve Hill was the weird guy that was that was hanging around and and seemed uncomfortable and was became suspicious and they brought him in and they found out it was Stephen Hill, the coworker of Bill's who worked the shift before him. And but with him, they chased, you know they went and they interviewed him, asked him about his alibi, went and confirmed his alibi and all the stuff, and then he was cleared. I don't remember how or if that guy was ever cleared. I, I think that the only thing it was just it was just a note right in the police report that just said it, basically it seemed suspicious. And it could be anything like morbid curiosity. You know, so right. many of us have that issue Mm -hmm. they want to research serial killers and whatever else it is but it's just morbid curiosity it could be that well and i have to assume that he's a local because he was you know again it's not internet days you Mm -hmm. see all the the police lights and stuff out there you go walking down the street uh and asking if it's male i I guess that was always my assumption that it was a regular from the neighborhood and he knows you know the attendants that work there's gloria and there's i think there's only four people that work at the station I don't know who the fourth one was, but I know there was Gloria, Stephen Hill, and Bill Little. 
I'm not sure who the fourth one was. So it, to me, it would make sense if somebody was like, well, was it a male who was working? Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Aaron says, I keep going back to the timing between the last time the drawer was opened and when we believe the shots were. With the two unsub theory, with one leaving and the second entering the store, why wouldn't Bill have done something? lock the door, call someone, etc., in the interim after being robbed, but before the second unsub enters. What if he did? He hit the silent alarm. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think that, I think it still fits because if he, you know, if, if that's what happened, so we're talking about a two-person theory, two theory, he gets robbed, gives the guy the money, the guy leaves, because I think it was the drawer was open at 8.15, the silent alarm was pressed at 8.16. So what if the guy, he, you know, opens a drawer, Gives him the money, the guy takes off, and Bill just hits the silent alarm and is waiting there for the police. Mm -hmm. And is sitting there panicked. I mean, he just got robbed. Right. Sometimes you don't do anything. Mm -hmm. You just kind of sit there. Right. And and if if you had pressed the silent alarm, you know police are coming. What else Mm -hmm. can you do? Unless other than maybe pick up the phone. But you know, I I wanted to I want to circle back to this. We've talked about many times, but I just I had another I interviewed a man yesterday that has participated in armed robberies, several armed robberies. And I asked him, because I'm still baffled by this, about taking the tray out of the register. And he was equally baffled by it. I, you know, he said, well, I guess he's you know, trying to get out of there quick. And I said, well, right, but it's full of change. Like, why would you, why would you take that? And because and, we talked about a couple of things, like is this personal, like it was a hit, somebody coming in to whack him, as he put it. Or it was it a robbery gone wrong? And he's like, man, I don't know. He's like, you, and we talked about that five minute gap. And he's like, God, if yeah, when you got the money, he's he said, yeah, when I've done it, as soon as I got the money, I'm out of there. You get you get the hell out of there as quickly as possible. And then he's like, but if you're there for the intent and purpose of killing someone, you don't wait around and rob them. You just walk in, pull the trigger, and get out. So it's it's just a real confusing set of circumstances, but. What do you guys, I know we've talked about before, what do you think about the drawer? That The change is really bugging me. So the one thing that keeps coming to mind, which again is pure speculation, is if the suspect had like a bag, some, you know what I mean? A plastic bag, something they could conceal. Mm-hmm. They take the drawer and just, I don't want to say dump it, but they just stash it in the bag and go out the door. That's possible. So, I mean, it's a way to conceal the change without, because there's no loose change anywhere. You know, there's a couple right. of pennies, but that doesn't mean anything. Right. So there's no loose change anywhere. So that's the only way that I can come up with a theory that there wouldn't be loose change if you're running down the road with. And that's a good point to, um, to mention that the fact that there was no change meant that maybe that perp had intentions of robbing the store, right? Mm-hmm. So that could have been mm-hmm. their main motivation. It's a huge clue, I think. Yeah, it is a huge clue if, if that's accurate. I'm trying, you know, so you got. The Luna boys said now, and and I do believe this. I don't believe that they thought it was a cash register insert, Mm -hmm. but I believe that they saw someone that looked like they had something under their coat. Mm -hmm. I think you can make that out from that far away. Something that looks funny, like they're holding something. So I guess that could make sense if they had a bag and they just took the whole thing Mm -hmm. and threw it into a bag and then 
tucked it under their coat and walked out. Mm -hmm. Possible, but man, it still seems strange. It does seem strange, but that's just, you know, a theory you could go with. They go in with a garbage bag. They already have one in their pocket, whatever, Mm -hmm. maybe not even a garbage bag or, and they, they dump it, put it under their, put it in their jacket under their arm Mm -hmm. and out they go. And and that honestly, that's, that's the first theory I've heard that makes sense Mm -hmm. because I don't buy the walking out holding like a pizza tray or a pizza box. They couldn't have just tucked it under their coat because the money would have fallen out all over the place, especially at least the, the change. The change. They maybe then put it in a bag. But then again, so now they got the register tray, a bag, and the gun. I mean, do they have the wherewithal? I, I don't know, man. I, 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 I honestly, as crazy as it sounds, I'm leaning more and more towards there being two people, two separate events connected. You know, two people are working together, mm-hmm. but two separate events. Like the whole thing, the bag theory you just mentioned, makes more sense to me if the dude with the bag is not the guy that killed him. If if we're going with a two person, the first person, right? He his his entire motivation is just to rob him. Mm-hmm. Gets the drawer open again. Going back to this question about what did Bill do after? So this guy gets the drawer open, grabs the tray, throws it in a bag, takes off, which is what. I've been speaking to criminals who do armed robberies about this, and it's the same thing they all tell me is you just get out of there. Mm-hmm. Get the hell out of there as quickly as possible. As soon as you have the money, get out. Just why Jim and I both profiled this as a personal cause homicide is because why wait for five minutes? Mm-hmm. But, man, if they take that register tray, put it in a bag, and bounce, and then Bill, in response to that, hits the silent alarm, and then a second person comes into the store mm-hmm. and shoots him and then leaves. Man, that answers a lot of questions. It answers a lot of questions from the differences between Danny Martinez's statement from the air pump and Carlos Luna's statement from across the street. How did Luna look across the street and not see Martinez? Because mm-hmm. he would have had to look right past him. I mean, there's a lot of a lot there. And you got, you know, the Luna boys that say it looks like he's holding something under his coat. Whereas Martinez says that it looks like he's got his hands in his pockets, like holding a gun mm-hmm. as opposed to holding money. I mean, it's not usually like me to have the crazy theory. And usually I'm an Occam's razor guy, right? The The simplest solution is probably the accurate one. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if this isn't the simplest solution. We, we, we got to come up with a whole bunch of different ways and reasons to make Luna and Pilo and Martinez's statements fit together if they're all talking and and Gutierrez if they're all talking about one guy. So look at that, the difference between the composites that Gutierrez drew and the composite that Martinez drew. Mm-hmm. Those are definitely not the same guy. Could be Martinez just didn't get close enough look, which is possible, probable. But it could be also as two different guys wearing similar clothing. Kind of similar clothing. I mean, so what do you think? Do you think the two per theory is where does it fall into that balance for you between that and a single perp theory? I've been leaning towards the two perp. I mean, I kind of brought that up a few episodes ago or, right. or a while ago. It could still lead to them knowing Bill. You sure. know, maybe that person, that first person came in and robbed them and get ready to bleep me, but robbed them and went back to the car and said, oh, f- that was Bill. You know, Bill, it was Bill. He knew, he knows who I am. And the other guy goes, and the other guy's like, well, I'm going to go take care of this. Mm hmm. Also, point uh, to note is going back to a previous question about Gloria Luna. In that robbery, 
she said that there was two people. Mm-hmm. One came in. I don't remember the details just off the top of my head. I had them a few minutes ago and they, they popped out. But what I remember is one came in and asked where the bathroom was. That's what it was. And the bathrooms you get to outside. Mm-hmm. And he leaves and goes out to the bathroom. And then right after that, another guy comes in, asks where the bathroom is. That's a guy that robs her. She presses the alarm and then he goes out and then she hears because, you know, the, the, you enter from the outside, but the walls are inside the building. She could hear two voices inside the bathroom. Like they met the bathroom, which is around the side of the building where uh, both Martinez and Luna say that the perp walked around the, the east side of the building. That's where the entrance is to the bathroom. And in Gloria's case, she could hear them in there talking, the two guys. And, and the common denominator was one comes in, asks you where the bathroom is. He walks out. Another guy comes in. So, you know, that bathroom being around that side of the building could play, too. Mike says, can you speak about any changes you are seeing or hearing about in the criminal justice system since you started? One of your previous intros talked about changing the system, and it feels so easy to lose hope constantly listening to podcasts about wrongful convictions in the prosecution system. I think that the cha- some of the changes that we're seeing are exactly what you just said, constantly listening to podcasts about wrongful convictions. So step one of making real, genuine change in anything is awareness. And the fact that so many people, not just us, you know, they kind of, you know, you know, Serial told the story, myself and the Undisclosed podcast picked up the pieces and started an active investigation into the case. And that's when I think this process really started to get going and get popular. I'm not saying there weren't other podcasts doing it before, but I just wasn't aware of, aware of them if there were. And now the iTunes is full of podcasts like ours that are doing these active investigations that are bringing awareness. And so the, the awareness is leading to accountability, right? So it, it's, it's with any change that you want to make in any kind of system, going back and undoing. So, so there's, there's, there's no doubt there are thousands of men and women around this country that were wrongfully convicted. We haven't made a change that says, okay, we can do a sweeping blow and wipe out all these wrongful convictions now. We're working at them, just banging away one piece at a time, one, just trying to help as many people as we can help. And, and I think we're being pretty successful in that. But the change is the people that are being tried today, I think it's a whole different story. I think, I think we're helping to limit the number of wrongful convictions that are occurring on a day-to-day basis because, number one, jury education. Every single one of you listening and everybody that's listening to all those podcasts are aware now. They're not getting their understanding of the criminal justice system from scripted, fictionalized television series anymore. People are listening to podcasts like this one. They're watching documentaries that are becoming more and more popular. And all those people have the potential to become jurors. And even if you just get one, one person on a jury that has a real understanding of what reasonable doubt means and has a real understanding of how the system is supposed to work, it's going to make a difference. Also, I guarantee you there are, I know personally police officers that are friends of mine, and I'm sure the prosecutors, it's the same thing, that literally discussed every time, anytime a prosecutor in 2019 thinks about holding back a piece of evidence, an exculpatory piece of evidence that used to be common practice. We went, you know, the cases we looked at in the early 90s in Smith County, Texas, it went through all of them. Now, People like me and you and Zach and Mike, 
that five years ago didn't have a clue what the term Brady violation meant. Now just ordinary citizens, and we're not lawyers, just ordinary citizens know what a Brady violation is. They know what the Strickland standard is. They know what ineffective assistance of counsel is. And so that awareness is causing accountability for the current district attorneys, the current prosecutors, and also we're putting that, that a different kind of education into our jury pool now. And it's not, it's not something we're going to be able to snap our fingers and fix and make go away. It's going to be a slow burn. It's going to be a hard journey, but we just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And maybe in our lifetime, we're not going to see the difference, but I promise you, I guarantee you, our grandchildren will. The criminal justice system will be a different animal by the time generations behind us come up into adulthood because of the work that we're all doing collectively to draw awareness and to push the issue to correct the system. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our Friday Follow-Up logo was created by Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I want to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support the show by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website. Just click on the Case Submissions button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And you can also connect with Mike at mbussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. big deal why is mike's head zoomed so much like i have like nipple up what's your camera we gotta look change like? mike's camera what's your camera look like no oh, <laughs> yours is over there yeah i'm like fuck. nipple up
And Mike is face on. I, I think we need to change his camera. Can we do it while it's recording or is it things yeah, up? Yeah, just zoom it out a little bit. No, that's not what I was talking I, about. I think that's a risk. Oh the, oh, the lighting you mean? Yeah. No, we can't do that while it's recording. But you can change the uh, the zoom a little. I think, I think we're stepping into territory that we time. might not come back careful, from. Careful, careful. A little more, a little more. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus, terms apply.